Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. And Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Please clear the aisles and take your seats. Airlines Confidential is ready for takeoff. I'm Ben Baldanza. Thanks for joining us. And I'm Chris Chimes. Good to have you all with us. We're into summer. Both Ben and I have some business and leisure travel coming up, but we're committed to keeping the factory open and the show's on track. So hope you plan to join us for the summer as well. Chris, I think our listeners are going to enjoy our conversation with Nina Johnson, the Vice Chair of Iceland Air. But first, a few quick news items. Last summer, we were talking a lot about unruly passengers. This summer might be the reason for unruly airline employees. No criticism intended there. At least in Europe, among the issues in progress or planned are strikes or job actions at Brussels Airlines, Ryanair, Air France, Spanish EasyJet, Lufthansa, now BA staff at Heathrow just voted in favor of a strike. Of course, in the U.S., we've already talked about the strike authorizations by pilots at Alaska, and then Southwest pilots are stepping up their informational picketing. But let's specifically talk about Europe. I'm not even going to get into all the airport staffing disruptions that we have been talking about and are separate from any airline employee actions. But I think travelers are going to need some kind of playbill or program. Until a few weeks ago, it was all about understanding the testing and vaccination requirements of international travel to Europe. Now it's about which airlines and airports are operating and open, maybe. This has gotten crazy, Chris. I never would have thought I would have preferred uncertainty around whether you need to be tested or have a vaccination card with you compared to is the airline going to even operate or can I check a bag or things like that. It's really amazing what's happening there. And obviously, anyone thinking of traveling is going to have to check the websites of the airlines really closely with flights being canceled, airports metering down flights, airport executives saying arrive three hours early or don't check bags or make sure you have time. If you're connecting in a European hub, I think that's going to be the biggest challenge. If you get on a plane in the U.S. and land where you're going, that's probably a little easier in terms of having to deal with things like that. But it's certainly going to make what would otherwise be a very bullish transition Atlantic summer uh, just add challenges to that. I think the underlying thing here, though, in terms of the strike actions and the picketing in the U.S., Chris, is that the disruption in operations, while it affects passengers in a huge way, obviously, when your flight is canceled or delayed, it also has big implications for airline employees. And they aren't where they need to be. They have to deal 
with the frustration of the customers when they don't necessarily know what the answers are, and yet they're counted on to provide good information when they don't always have it. So it's not surprising to me that at some point the employees of the airlines are going to say, look, we're having a hard time dealing with this too. And airline employees want their airline to run reliably and they want to run on time. They don't want to be waiting for their flights. They don't want to be dumped off in the wrong city. So in a somewhat good sense, there's an alignment between what the customers want and what the airline's employees want in terms of getting the world airline industry back into a reliable state. Well, you know, as we say in the U.S., for our international listeners, the buck stops here, the buck stops at the top, and this is ultimately up to executives to figure this out and to solve it. Notwithstanding, like you said, there's lots of frustration at various levels, but we've been waiting two years for travel to return. It's returned. We've been waiting two years for the international travel piece to be simpler. There's no more testing requirements and a lot of you know, to and from destinations. We've been waiting for this. Executives have got to figure this out. Ben, I don't know about you, but I've watched that video of the idiotic passengers on the red air flight that crash landed at Miami on June 22nd multiple times. I'm sorry to be harsh, but the plane is in flames. People are taking their luggage and shooting video like they're walking to the Uber pickup spot. The day after this incident, Qantas Airlines got scolded by Australian safety experts for their safety briefing video because passengers did the same thing with luggage during a 2019 evacuation. Is this like going to be a thing? I think it is a thing because what you can post as dramatic video is drives a lot of people, right? They have their phones with them. They want to post on Instagram. They want to say, here's where I was, or I was in this crash or something. What they fail to think about is that a plane that crash lands and there's flames, there's fuel on that plane, it could explode. You you just want to get out of there as quickly as possible. And I know we all check things in our luggage and have clothes we particularly like, and you don't want to lose that stuff. But the balance... When something like that happens, you just want to run as far away as you can from that. And don't worry about the photos. Don't worry about the videos. Don't worry about the bags because the decision to stay and film it or spend longer time on the airplane to get your bag out could be the difference between life and death in a crashed airplane. It's just amazing to me that people do that. Now, I say that. And I thought, Chris, when I hear announcements that in an emergency, exit quickly, leave your baggage behind, I've always thought, well, if it's right there when I grab it, you know, I've thought that myself. But what bothers me most about this video, and I watch it a couple times too, is just the sort of nonchalance of videoing it as if this is going to make some great video, like it's a game or something. Right. And then I guess I was surprised that, you know, I get, you know, you can't stop somebody from reaching up above or below and getting their bag and especially like the roller bag. 
But once they got to the emergency exit, why the flight attendants weren't grabbing that luggage and throwing it out of the way? I mean, people were going down the slide with the with their bags, and there were a bunch of bags at the bottom of the slide um, that were just being collected. So I'm not sure why the flight attendants, for example, and the cabin crew didn't grab things out of people's hands. Maybe they thought it would just further disrupt the evacuation process, but uh, it just seemed like there was no supervision. Well, you know, I guess we never know how we're going to react until we're actually in a situation. But when you look at that video, you do see some abhorrent behavior. Yeah. Well, load planning for any operation is complex and time-consuming, and Aerodata can help. Aerodata's load planning solutions computerize and automate the entire load planning process, streamlining workloads, optimizing load distribution, enabling airlines to maximize their payloads, and ultimately eliminating the potential delays by flagging flights that require extra attention. The solutions also integrate with reservation systems, cargo vendors, baggage scanning, container operations, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and connect with the Aerodata team. And this week's show is also brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and APUs. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is delivering industry-leading sustainability, mature dispatch reliability, and world-class operating costs. Now with the GTF Advantage engine for the Airbus A320neo family, the best is getting even better. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Com slash advantage. Ben, finally on the news front, a new twist of sorts on the pilot shortage issue. SkyWest is going to remove 20 seats from their 50-seat RJs so they can operate under the Part 135 rules here in the U.S. Now, the conventional wisdom is that 50-seat RJs are no longer economically efficient. So how do you make a 30-seat on a 50-seat RJ make sense? Please unpack this for us. <laughs> I was shocked when I saw this, but said, SkyWest is pretty smart. What are they doing here? So as I looked into it more, I'm not convinced this is going to work, but I give credit for their creativity. By being able to operate under 135 rules and creating a separate carrier that will be called a charter operator, rather than the scheduled service carrier that SkyWest is, they don't have to follow the 1,500-hour rule, and they can hire pilots on an apprentice-based system for first officers with 250 or a few more hours, pair them with a seasoned captain, and train them that way. That's a way that they can potentially get more pilots for the small planes. And my guess is they're are going to use most, if not all, of these uh, 30-seat RJs, as tough as that is to say, these 30-seat RJs, to be able to continue to support essential air service cities. So if they're getting subsidies to fly to these small cities, but they don't have pilots, by putting it in a charter operation, maybe they can get the pilots, continue to get the subsidy to fly there, but the offset is they can't have more than 30 seats on the plane. So given that the EAS cities are very small cities, it's possible that 30 seats is enough. 
However, whether the weight and fuel and everything of that plane can make those services profitable, even with the subsidy, is still in question. So I give Southwest credit for thinking about how else can we attack this pilot issue. Well, if we start a charter operation, we can hire pilots that we couldn't hire for Southwest. That's a great idea. Whether or not taking 20 seats out of an already not-so-economic 50-seat RJ is going to work, I don't know. But if that's what they've got to do to test this, I support the test. I feel like we're watching Olympic platform diving or ice skating or gymnastics where like the final score is a computation of both the technical difficulty and then the actual execution. So, you know, this is making a complicated business more complicated, but let's see how they execute. But I'm kind of with you. There's an element of skepticism, but hoping that they can make it work. You know, I was thinking of it more like curling where the, uh, where the crew schedulers and crew planners are the broom people and they're trying to create enough pilots so that the puck can keep moving. It's like, keep blowing it down the, down the, the course. I like that. Well, we'll be right back with uh, Nina Johnson. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by AeroData, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're very excited to have as our guest this week, a former colleague of both Ben and myself, Nina Johnson. Uh, We all work together at US Airways. She's held a number of executive positions and board positions across the industry. So I think we'll have an interesting chat. Nina, welcome to Airlines Confidential. Thank you, Chris. Great to be with you and, and uh, fantastic to have a little mini reunion here amongst the three of us, US Air alumni. So. That's right. Well, we always start with having a self-introduction of sorts. So please tell our listeners about your background in the business and what you're doing now. Yes, absolutely. So I've, I've been in the business uh, well over 30 years at this point. I can't believe it's been that long. But uh, out of the 30 years, I spent 25 at the major airlines. Uh, Initially, U.S. Airways, uh, then United and Air France KLM. And then the last five years, I've really been focusing more on the consulting side and on joining some board roles. Uh, so that's what I've been up to the last 30 years. But in a general background, I'm, I'm a true aviation brat. You know, I grew up in the business. Both parents worked in the business. Uh, my mother was a flight attendant. My dad was a mechanic. And, um, you know, I was born in Iceland originally, and I think my first flight was at six weeks old on a DC-6 heading to Luxembourg. <laughs> so it's truly jet fuel in my veins from, from day one, and uh, I couldn't imagine any other profession than uh, working in aviation. So that's always been a given. And um, I grew up in Luxembourg originally because my father was part of the bunch of Icelanders that uh, helped start Cargolux at the time in Luxembourg. So that's the reason for my upbringing over there. And, uh, you know, it was a bit of a colony of 100 Icelanders that participated in, in launching that, now one of the major freighter companies in the world. And out of the 100 Icelanders there, all of all of the dads worked in, in aviation. So we were all able to kind of uh, travel the world and participate in, in this wonderful business from, from the get-go. Um, I have to say, 
Mina, yeah. I, I don't know anyone from Luxembourg or Iceland except for you, and so you check the box on, on both. Two small, two small countries that always get asked, "Where is that?" So, uh, but uh, no, proud to uh, identify as a multicultural individual here after living in various places around the globe, and and it served me well over the years. More so, people probably know about Iceland in terms of where it is than Luxembourg. <laughs> That's true. It's finally on the map after that volcanic eruption, you know, some some twelve years ago. So uh, people now know where it is. No, and and uh, so I, I finished school over there and came to the U.S. when when my dad took a job here in the U.S. after high school, basically for me. And my intent was to become an airline pilot and uh, did all my flight training and such. And then once I graduated, I went to undergrad in in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, it turned out that all the major airlines, several major airlines, were um, going bankrupt and, and stopping operations. So Pan Am, Eastern, TWA, all of them were going out of business just as I was ready to pursue a pilot career. And uh, the market was flooded with, you know, high time captains and I wasn't going to get a job for many, many years. So <laughs> I had to pivot and uh, went to grad school instead, got my MBA and uh, decided to do it at an engineering school. So I went to Rensselaer Polytech up in Toronto, New York. And that technical environment has served me well uh, in my career ever since. And uh, I just entered the airline business in a different fashion and uh, entered on the management side. Eventually going to US Air in uh, Washington, DC. And that's where I spent my longest tenure, about 14 years. And after that, went on to United. Once United uh, merged with Continental, I went, actually, <laughs> another pivot, uh, went into helicopter world for three years joined Bristow Group, the largest helicopter operator in the world in Houston, Texas. And uh, from there was recruited to Paris to join Air France KLM and was there for a couple of years and eventually came back to Chicago. And uh, so it's been a whirlwind the last few years and I'm glad to be settled now in Chicago and, and take on more of a consulting role and, and do it from my home base here in Chicago. What a fantastic background, and it seems like you were born with aviation fuel in your blood. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. No escaping it. Well, when the three of us were all at U.S. Airways, you know, Chris was running PR, I was running marketing, and you were responsible for the fleet, which you did for many years. At that point in your career, probably just out of grad school and then the next 17 years, like you said. <laughs> was that a satisfying role for you to have, given that you initially wanted to be a pilot? Absolutely. And I, it was really, it, it naturally just evolved in that way. I think I was originally hired more on the network side, corporate planning side. So I did root profitability analysis. You know, this was the early days of modeling in, in Excel didn't even exist back then. I'm really aging myself, but you know, spreadsheet modeling, uh, cost modeling, flight profitability, all those things. So, you know, I, I guess <laughs> I am aging myself by saying I think I built the first cost model at US Air way back when in the early 90s. But eventually, I think I naturally progressed into a fleet role because it is so cross-functional. And because I had both the business understanding with my MBA and management degree, but also the technical interest and, and knowledge that I ended up translating a lot between headquarters and, and the technical operational functions. And that just naturally lent itself to taking on a fleet role. And fleet really, you know, is, is probably one of the most cross-functional roles you can have at an airline. 
because you really have to have an understanding of every aspect of the airline. You have to understand the technical side. You have to understand the customer side. Uh, you have to have a knowledge of uh, contracts and legal, obviously finance and economics, uh, network profitability, what aircraft work best for the airline. Uh, so really, you have to wear many hats and understand every aspect of the airline in order to to fulfill that role. And I just thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm lucky to have been able to do it for that long. Well, Nina, let's fast forward to today. Uh, yeah. And you're currently the vice chair at Iceland Air. Yes. Uh, obviously, your time in the industry served you well in, in this current position. What's the lay of the land there? You've beaten back the challenge from wow, it looks like. Now you've got to focus on play. But what's the future for Iceland Air and also for air travel in that part of the world? Yeah, I mean, it's exciting. Interestingly, I I was asked to join the board two weeks before COVID shutdown, before the borders closed. And uh, so, you know, many, many people told me, you know, as, as soon as I joined the board, oh, no, you, you joined the board at a terrible time. And, and my response has been overwhelmingly, no, absolutely. This was the best possible time to join the board of Iceland Air because exactly that boot camp, that, 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 that tough lessons learned that I'd lived through uh, in the early part of my career, that if there has been one recurring theme in my career, it's, it's challenging times and survival mode. So that's literally what I've always had to work with. And, you know, no better time to join Iceland there than during COVID shutdown and, and roll up our sleeves and, and help them weather the storm, not only weather the storm, but also help them prepare for the eventual recovery and, and not just recover, but grow thereafter. So, so we were able to take a lot of lessons learned and, and, and apply them appropriately even during uh, the crisis and having the context and the background and, and having been through the ringer before, knowing you know, you're going to come out at the end of it better than, than going into it. And uh, so it's been extremely rewarding to be joining that board at this particular point in time. Now, we're clearing the recovery period right now. And, and yes, we have a new competitor, Play. Um, on, on, on the local side, I think they're, they're growing, you know, more steadily than WOW before. Uh, but nonetheless, yes, they are a competitor. And quite frankly, I think I welcome that. Uh, it's, it's always good to have a competitor in, in, in your, your home hub to, to keep you honest, to you know, make you sharpen your pencil and, and keep your wits about you. And competition is good. Uh, but honestly, I think the biggest competition is from all the international major airlines, because particularly during COVID, there weren't that many destinations outside of the US or, or even in Europe that you could fly to. Iceland was open fairly early. So we are competing against, you know, the giants like uh, United and Delta flying to Iceland on a daily basis. EasyJet, uh, Wiz, and others on the European side. So uh, I think there's a, about 27 airlines that we compete with in Keplerik on a daily basis. So uh, Play is just one of those. And uh, yes, they are on our local turf, but you know, I think Iceland Air has been quite used to having to compete on an international level for, for many, many years. And happy to say Iceland Air has uh, just celebrated its 85th birthday uh, last couple of weeks. So they've been around for a long time and, and you know, being true Vikings, they adapt and and uh, and move forward. 
They're very lucky to have you, Nina. And the fact that you uh, speak Icelandic must be a special bonus for them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I do speak it and uh, they're, they're very patient with me. You know, since I never actually grew up in Iceland, I grew up as an expat in Luxembourg. I never went to school in Iceland and Icelandic is a really, really one of the most difficult grammatic languages you can possibly imagine in the world. And uh, they're very patient with me. I think they, they keep telling me I don't have an, a foreign accent. So that makes me feel better. I, I speak Icelandic in a true local accent. But, you know, the, um, the business lingo, you know, I never really got to learn over there. So I, I'm a quick learner. I think I've learned a lot in my last three years with them. Um, but it, it does help quite a bit. Interestingly, on the board, and it's a fairly small board uh, for Iceland there, it's only five people. But all of us have ties to the U.S. or have lived in the U.S. Uh, and I think only one, one of us is actually full-time living in Iceland. So it's a very international board right now. And uh, three of us have extensive aviation experience. Uh, two are, are more local and on the IT side, corporate uh, organizational philosophy and such. So it's, it's quite interesting how international the board has become. And I think that's serving the company quite well. Well, tell us a little more quickly, if you can, about the other interesting roles you're playing on the board and advising, Plainview, Waltzing Matilda, and Flight. These all sound very exciting and interesting and must keep you quite busy. Indeed, indeed. And I, I, I'm, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. I'm really lucky to be able to do all of this. And uh, it's really just evolved organically, uh, to be honest with you. It's not something that I've sought out necessarily. But about five years ago, Plainview Partners uh, reached out to me about joining them right after I came back to Chicago from uh, spending some time at Air France KLM overseas. What initially was only supposed to be a, a, a short time joining them for some project work uh, while I was figuring out what I wanted to do next. I've now been with them for five years and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And really Plainview is, is a small boutique consulting firm of former C-level executives from the industry. And um, what, what I like about it is, you know, many of my trusted colleagues who over the years at the airlines were negotiating with me at the other side of the table or were consulting uh, with me and, and for us at various airlines, we are now all working on the same team on behalf of our customers. So you have, you know, former C-level leaders of, of, you know, OEMs, of, of lessors, financing entities, um, consulting firms. All of us working together on the same team and bringing our various angles to the table. So it's been truly uh, enriching and, and, and satisfying to all work together. We all respect each other. We all bring something different to the table. And to be able to work on these various projects with, you know, the senior executives of airlines around the globe. And, um, you know, it's a fairly small company, but nonetheless, you know, we... we you know, I think we at this point after, I think they have been in existence now for seven years... We have the attention of the industry now, and I'm happy to say we have plenty of projects coming our way. Um, but, you know, we can also be selective in which projects we do pursue. We're still a fairly small team, but uh, we really try to do the projects that, that we enjoy, that we know are going to be successful for our clients. So that's that's a great group to be working with. Uh, so that's Plainview. Um, Walsing Matilda Aviation, this is actually a... a, a um, a colleague of mine on the Iceland Air Board, John Thomas, he has for many, many years, he, he used to be the, um, the head of aviation consulting firm LEK 
Consulting. And uh, he has had a business, a corporate business uh, aviation uh, company up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts for the last 12 or 15 years. So part 135 business. And uh, he had the idea to actually convert that certificate to a commercial airline certificate 121. And that's what I'm in the process of helping them out with, basically upgrading a 135 to a 121. And the intent is to launch a regional airline called Connect Airlines with turboprops Q400s and initially focus on flying in and out of uh, Billy Bishop uh, in, in Toronto to some of the major uh, hubs here in the U.S., but eventually co-chairing with some of the U.S. majors as well, given that the major airlines in the U.S. in particular are reducing a lot of their flying in the smaller cities and regional flying in particular. So many cities are, leaving, are, are left with no service at all. So that's really where he wants to come in. And uh, to top that off, he is also focusing on making Connect Airlines the first zero emission airline in the U.S. in a partnership with Universal Hydrogen. And um, for those of you who are not familiar with Universal Hydrogen, they are the ones, I think, uh, funnily known as the, the coffee pod approach, where basically they have the hydrogen tanks that are actually put into the aircraft that fuel the engines, as opposed to having to wait for infrastructure at airports around the globe to actually uh, get put in place in order to fly green. And then last but not least, uh, Flight. Uh, I'm the chairman of Flight. Uh, Flight is a company based in Calgary, Canada, and they've been a leader in live aircraft data streaming for over 20 years. I joined their board a little over three years ago. I'm in my fourth year with them. And they have proprietary avionics that allow the live capture of data, aircraft data, basically all the data captured by the flight data recorder. And they've been doing this for 20 years, longer than anyone else in the industry. We'll have more of our conversation with Nina Johnson in a moment. But first, Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Nina, the airline business over the last 30 plus years has done an okay job of promoting and identifying women in more senior positions on certain parts of the business, and HR and PR and marketing. A lot of women have had executive roles in in-flight service, for example, You've really been one of those trailblazers more on the operations and planning side. Do you think there's going to be more opportunities and we're going to see more women executives? Is there attraction now, you think, that um, women have a seat at the table and can stay there? And are, going to, are we going to see more and more women CEOs, for example? Thank you so much for that question, Chris. You know, that, that's so near and dear to my heart. Um you know, I'm, I'm happy to say that there finally does seem to be traction, uh, and particularly the last couple of years. I mean, with the whole industry really focused on it and, and committing to it, especially through IATA and efforts and others to, to really achieve more gender parity and, and quite frankly, more diversity uh, at the top levels in, in, in the industry, it does seem to be gaining traction. And I'm happy to see, you know, airline CEOs now across the board 
you know, more women are joining uh, the CEO roles. I think what triggered a lot of this was, I think about five years ago, at least for me, seeing the, the, the picture of an IATA conference with airline CEOs and out of, I think, 50 individuals, one person was a woman. And I think it really caught everybody's attention that, oh my goodness, I mean, here it is, you know, in your face, <laughs> what is going on here? And uh, it really was the catalyst uh, for some tough conversations in the industry and, and, and to get everybody to acknowledge that, yeah, something needs to be done here to proactively uh, help move this in the right direction. And I'm, I'm happy to see how quickly the change is happening. Um, a lot of my male colleagues, you know, I think there, there is a sense of, in some cases, embarrassment of not having paid attention to this, but also a, an absolute willingness to change it. So I'm, I'm just delighted to see that spirit uh, being being overarching in this whole effort. And, and, and real accomplishments have happened in the last couple of years. I mean, now we have women CEOs of you know Air France and KLM, my former home. I'm happy to see two women CEOs there. Uh, we have a, a woman CEO of, of um, uh, Al Al. We have uh, a woman CEO at TAP Portugal. We have a woman CEO at Aer Lingus. Uh, and obviously long-time woman CEO at Vietjet and, and also at Virgin Australia. So, so we're coming along, but I would certainly challenge my, my U.S.-based colleagues to make a bit more of an effort because we still don't have a woman CEO in the U.S. So I'm hoping to see that here in the coming years eventually as well. A lot of progress has been made on getting them to kind of number three or number two position. I, I would definitely uh, congratulate uh, JetBlue and, and Alaska for, for making the most progress in that regard, but we still don't have a woman CEO in the U.S. So I'm hoping to see that here in the very near future at some point. I think we all are, Nina. <laughs> Nina, you have so much airline experience. We want to ask you a couple questions around issues that have dominated, you know, certain themes on the podcast for a while. The first is, what do you think about business travel since the pandemic? Is it all coming back or are there things that have changed permanently with video and risk assessment and things that just changes that? Well, I think there's definitely been a permanent structural change. Um, clearly, video conferencing is, is just become the norm on a daily basis. But maybe I have, not, I have generally not been as pessimistic as maybe others in the industry about the rebound of business travel. And I certainly see that even in our own industry, there's so much pent-up desire to meet people in person. I think, you know, even speaking for myself, being able to work from home during the pandemic, you know, myself and many of my colleagues, if not most, we all relied on connections made, relationships developed over years and years of in-person cooperation and working together and visiting each other on a regular basis. And I think many of us, we are tapped out on that at this point, right? So it's time to go out there and, and meet new people or reconnect in person again. And certainly what I've seen you know, at, at conferences, I mean, my goodness, they're, they're, attendance has never been greater. People are just thirsting for in-person interaction and uh, are, are joining conferences at, at record levels to reconnect in person and, and, and make new acquaintances. I think what what's going to change is, you know, the day tripping, you know, the quick overnight trip for one meeting is going to be tough to justify economically anymore. 
Uh, many companies, especially in Europe, I think have been quite vocal in that regard, that they're not going to allow their employees to do that anymore. But on the flip side, I think there's going to be an increase, especially with remote working becoming such the norm, there's still going to be a need to get people together. And it's going to probably be in the form of industry conferences, larger group gatherings, you know, company outings or field trips uh, in order to, you know, get people in, in the same room together. So I think it's that's never going to make up for all of the business travel that happened before. But I think there's going to be a new kind of business travel that will evolve from this as well. There's just simply there is a natural human need for people to meet and interact on a business level, especially any kind of sales function. You, you do need to put in the time in person. So so I'm maybe a bit more optimistic than most in the industry on this topic. So don't put away your crystal ball yet. Um, <laughs> what do you think are going to be the trends over the next two to five years on transatlantic travel between the U.S. and Europe? That's that's a tricky one, right? Because with with you know, thankfully now finally the testing requirement has gone away. Getting back to the U.S., so that was a huge hindrance in in travel from Europe to the U.S. I think everyone in the U.S. has been travel happy even during the pandemic. I mean, it's it's incredible how certainly on the leisure side how you know quickly everything rebounded on the u.s side with regards to leisure travel uh i think people have been hesitant to go to europe uh during the pandemic because every country or, or certainly even though the eu had certain requirements that were standardized across the board nonetheless each individual country had different requirements with regards to testing vaccinations, COVID and such, and travel restrictions. But that has now eased up this summer. So I think the summer will be quite telling. Uh, there is clearly demand to travel and especially uh, leisure, on the leisure side where people have been wanting to travel, take their family on a summer vacation and haven't been able to for two, two and a half years. There's that pent up desire to do so. So it's gonna be interesting to monitor how the summer goes. We are quite optimistic. Um, certainly on the Iceland air side, that, that, you know, things will rebound quite nicely this year. Um, so it remains to be seen from the U.S. to Europe. Uh, I think, you know, it's going to take some time to get back to normal levels. I think what's not helping at the current time is the staffing issues in Europe as well uh, at the airports with long waiting lines and such. But uh, hopefully that will be addressed. Clearly that has everybody's attention over there. And uh, uh, hopefully this will return to normal at some point soon. Nina, this has been such a great conversation. We really appreciate you coming on the show, sharing your decades of awesome experience in such a range of interesting roles, both with airlines directly on the consulting side, on the tech side. Thanks again for entertaining all of us here at Airlines Confidential, and we hope you come back and talk to us at some point. Thank you so much, Ben and Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. Honored to be asked to join you here and uh, hope to see you in person at some point soon. Thanks, Nina. Great to get caught up. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Nina Johnson was kind enough to take our questions. Now we'll take a few of yours. Remember, you can send us a question via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. Ben, 
we've dabbled on the subject of slot controls for a few times over the past few weeks. And now we've got a follow-up question from Dan in Washington, D.C. Ben and Chris, I forgot the exact context of your comments on slot controlling airports, but I wanted to provide some thoughtful insight here. It's hard to say whether slot controls are good or bad for mitigating flight delays. The reality is like anything, there can be bad slot control programs. The question then is whether there is such a thing as a good slot control program, and if so, can that be proven? The challenge with our most delay-prone airports like LaGuardia or Newark or San Francisco is that their airport arrival rate is highly sensitive to weather. LaGuardia, for example, will call a 30, 34, 36, 38, or 40 rate, depending on wind and weather conditions. These variations may not seem like a huge deal, but if the airport schedules to a 40 rate, but can only support a 30 rate, arrivals and departures, which happens during high winds in the winter and the airport has to go to a single runway, then three-hour delays will easily ensue. Pre-COVID, the airport was scheduling to a 36 rate, which still causes nasty delays on bad weather days. So then the question becomes, what would an appropriate slot control rate for LaGuardia be, given that these decisions would be made months in advance when it's hard to predict weather on any given day? Clearly, there's got to be a balance between ticket prices and delays. Surely, we'd accept some level of delay for cheaper prices, which begs the question, how much delay is worth how much ticket price savings? Until we can answer that question, then no, I think it's difficult, if not impossible, to implement a good slot control program. Got that, Ben? What do you think? Well, this is real interesting from Dan. He's clearly thought a lot about this, and he clearly understands this world of slot controls and how there can be more slots allocated than the airport can operate on heavy weather days. So it's interesting what he's saying. I'm not sure that a good slot program would limit slots to only bad weather days that would lose a lot of opportunity on good days. And he's not really suggesting that. So I'm not suggesting he is. But this idea of how much delay will people take for cheaper prices, I think I think the issue is, you know, time is money for some people, but time isn't money for everyone, right? If you don't have a lot of money, time isn't money, I guess. And so <laughs> low ticket prices are really important for an airport like a LaGuardia or a Newark or a San Francisco, which have a lot of delays. The question is whether they should be scheduled more closely to what operationally can be handled most times and maybe allow the fares at those airports to go up somewhat for that while ensuring that there are good low fare options to maybe JFK or Stewart, or Oakland, or something like that. I guess my point is, different airports have different kinds of constraints. Dan points out that the weather drives a lot of the delays in these big airports, and when they're slot-controlled, 
you know, you have the slot, so you feel you have the right to schedule into that slot, even when the airport can't take it. That is a complicated factor, but maybe the best answer or maybe the good slot program that he contemplates having is one that might limit controls in the airports that are most susceptible to weather and allow more opportunities at airports that maybe whose runways aren't as short or maybe don't have as much weather problem as some of these airports do. But weather's everywhere. What the slots are trying to do is limit the total number of operations at the airport to something that can be controllable. What he's pointing out is even that rate is too high on weather days. So I'm not really sure what you do about that. And I'm not sure it would be better in an airport that doesn't have slots. Newark and San Francisco don't have slots, for example, and it doesn't seem to be working better for them. So it'd be hard to call the slot program at LaGuardia uh, a poor slot program because delays happen. I don't know that I added any insight to his question at all here or comment, <laughs> but it really is interesting what he's talking about is should we accept delays for low prices, I think. Yeah, I thought it was an excellent question. The other thing that I was reminded of when the question came in was, I, there still is, but there used to be a much bigger cottage industry of slot management, I think, when when more U.S. airports, quote, slot control. There was always the slot expert and who was keeping track of the slot usage and the like that um, I don't think is as front and center as it perhaps it used to be. But that you know, the slot expert in a in a major airline was always a really important guy or woman. So I don't, I don't know what Dan does, but he clearly understands slots more than the average bear. And then Ben, we've got a question from Stephen in Canada asking what we think about the recent announcement by WestJet to significantly reduce flying in Eastern Canada. Your thoughts? This is an interesting one. I think Eastern Canada has been challenging for WestJet on three dimensions, Chris. First of all, the airports in Eastern Canada, Toronto, Montreal, Ottawa, those airports are much more congested airspace than in Western Canada. Secondly, they're very expensive airports to operate. The AIF or Airport Improvement fee or fund, I'm not sure what the F stands for, which is the equivalent to the PFC in the U.S., are very high at most of the airports in Canada in general, and especially Eastern Canada. And you have this huge and improving Air Canada that flies a lot of flights there. So you take a it messes up our operation, it's real expensive, and my competitor is strongest there, maybe we can sort of divide the country in a different way where we'll own the West and they'll own the East. And I'm not sure that they're actually saying it that way. Their lawyers probably wouldn't let them say it that way. Um, but it seems to be that they've made the decision that it's not really in their strategic interests to fly as much in Eastern Canada for the reasons I mentioned. Seems smart to me that WestJet is 
understanding where they make money and where they don't and doing more of what works and less of what doesn't work so well. Yeah, I think you put it well. I mean, when you follow the money, then you also stop following where the money isn't. So the goal here is to be profitable and successful. The issue now is what opportunities open up for others, whether it be U.S. carriers who um, pull traffic uh, over their northern U.S. hubs in certain ways or new entrants or the like. But um, WestJet is a smartly managed company, and so there must be some good reasons why they're doing this. And uh, they're never going to be prohibited from coming back. But for the time being, I think they got to they got to right the ship with regard to how to be profitable and recover from COVID. That's right. You know, one of my favorite quotes from the airline industry, Chris, is when John Dasberg at Northwest said, the quickest way to stop losing money is to stop doing things that lose money. (laughs) And people laughed at that, but he was exactly right. And it sounds like WestJet has taken that to heart. Well, and it's scary how often it takes people longer than usual sometimes to come to that conclusion. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Ben, I know you've got a plane to catch, so we're going to close this down with some quick shout outs. I'm going to give mine to American Airlines for launching its new mobile app initiative. It's a free product, assuming you have TSA pre-check and are enrolled in Advantage. And you can clear TSA with just a QR code and dispense with your ID and boarding pass. Very cool. It was easy to enroll. Uh, My only complaint was you have to take a selfie without your glasses on, and I couldn't follow the prompts without my glasses on to get that done. So (laughs) it it took a little little while to find the right buttons, but uh, I'm looking forward to using it. Well, the more airlines can push things to our phones to check our bags, check in, get through security and everything, the better. That self-service is just great, and when they work, it's fantastic. Well, my shout out, Chris, goes to Air India. One of the things they're doing to address the pilot situation is they've gone back to 50 retired pilots. These are pilots who retired before they reached an age limit, but just decided they had had enough. And they've gone back to this group with sort of a proposal of come back and fly for us and here's what we'll do for you. And I think this is actually quite creative. It might sound desperate at first that they're going back to people who've retired Tired, but if these pilots have five or more years available still to legally fly and they're obviously very seasoned and experienced, it seems like it would take a lot less time to get them back online than going and find new people from scratch. So in a world where we've talked about taking seats off planes and doing other things to find pilots, I think this idea of identifying retired pilots who still have have usable time is a pretty smart idea. So I'm not sure if it's going to work for Air India, but I applaud them for trying it. Well, with that, let's uh, say goodbye and uh, fly safe, fly healthy, and if you're flying, pack a snack. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.